to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We're two of the living, just watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 2, which begins with the continuation of our cast credits, and it ends with a quick glimpse of the desert. How about these names, Julia? They just keep oh, coming, huh? There's a lot of names. <laughs> it's not just actors today. No, we really dig into behind-the-scenes people, which... Is nice because the actors coming up on the screen, we're going to talk about them during the movie. Oh, yeah. So this is our opportunity to introduce the people who are working behind the scenes and who are amazingly talented and accomplished people. Absolutely. The time that I spent looking into some of these names that we're going to talk about, I was blown away by how much they've been able to do over their careers. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we get to these people that have worked in the film industry and accomplished all of this great stuff, we got some kid actors to talk about. Oh, kid actors, huh? Yep. We start off this minute, the first 10 seconds of this minute, we've got two title guards with six names. We see Mark Spain, Mark Kwanis, Rod Zuenick, Justine Clark, Shane Tickner, and Tom Jennings. And they make up, I guess, the main group of the waiting ones, these kids that we're going to meet in week 17. And they've got these crazy names like Mr. Skyfish, Gecko, Screwloose, Anagoana, Slake, you know, the kind of names that you would imagine would come up out of some sort of weird little Lord of the Flies situation in the middle of a oasis. I will admit very freely at this point in our production schedule as we're recording this, I still don't exactly know who is who of these waiting ones. I haven't taken the time to go through and identify, okay, this one is Gecko, and this one is Slake, and this one is, you know, so-and-so. I haven't done that work yet, and I'm putting it off because there are just so many of them, and they move around constantly, and they're never standing still, and they're loud, and they're obnoxious, but, you know, there'll be plenty of time yes. for that later. Yes, there will. Ah. <laughs> uh. There's just so many of them. It's really easy to understand why George Miller hired a second director. But that's neither here nor there. Technically, it's there, not here. Anyway, let's move on. Because the next name we see is the production designer, Graham, also known as Grace Walker, which is a familiar name coming back from Road Warrior. He was brought in during Road Warrior for art direction. And when he came back for this third movie, they moved him up to production designer. And according to a, a web page that I read, the production designers are responsible for the visual concepts of a film. They identify and design style for sets, locations, graphics, props, yada, 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 yada. And they work very closely with the director and the producer, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, George Miller worked with Grace before. He can work with him again. So it's very cool. Another returning name is that of Norma Morisot, who came back as the costume designer. And of course, she was the one in Road Warrior who really injected a lot of leather <laughs> into the design. So she's back to inject her own style, which I feel is very easy to see once we really get into Barter Town. I agree. It's much less leather, S&M shop type stuff 
but it's still indicative of her work. Oh, yeah. You could argue that the denizens of Barter Town, particularly Auntie's guards, they move away from the S&M, and it's more like they now get their leather outfits from, like, a more the sporting goods slash swimwear side of things. <laughs> a lot of leather singlets going on and whatnot, so that'll be fun. An interesting thing about... Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome is these core movies really defined the Mad Max aesthetic. And yes, the Mad Max movies are the brainchild of George Miller and Byron Kennedy. It is their baby. They raised it and they, you know, taught it to walk to keep that metaphor going. But the visual aesthetic of these movies, I feel like you can really attribute them to Grace Walker and Norma Morisot as the production and costume designers. Cutting back to Road Warrior and the costume design in that movie, that's still an aesthetic that gets discussed on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. People talk about the football shoulder pads and the leather and the mohawks all the time. People who don't even really watch the movies or aren't particular fans of the movies, they know what you're talking about when you talk about that aesthetic. Mm -hmm. She's made it iconic. It's really great to think of that, yes, George Miller and his writing and his directing took this series up out of the dust and spread it all over the world, but behind every great director is an entire train full of cast and crew and whatnot holding that vision up. And it's great that these two individuals had such a vivid vision of a post-apocalypse that it still survives today. Yeah. Moving on, we get two more names. We get the casting director and the visual design consultant. Casting for this movie was done by Allison Barrett. She has done casting for a number of big name movies. Her IMDb page lists The Piano from 1993, Gallipoli from 1981, Muriel's Wedding from 1994. She cast all of those. So you can thank her for probably getting Mel Gibson into Gallipoli and getting Harvey Keitel into the piano. I've never seen Muriel's Wedding, so I don't know who's in that one. So I haven't either, but I've heard that it's a really good, really funny movie. Let's see. Muriel's Wedding. Like I said, it came out in 1994. A young social outcast in Australia steals money from her parents to finance a vacation where she hopes to find happiness and perhaps love. Rated R, one hour, 46 minutes. Comedy drama. All right. <laughs> Ed Vero, the visual design consultant, on the other hand, has a vastly different <laughs> top four on IMDb. He was brought in, obviously, to consult on the visual design. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. But the more well-known things that he's done in his career has been work as a production designer doing the job that Grace Walker was doing for this film. He was the production designer on Jurassic World in 2015, G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra in 2009. He worked on Looper 2012, that's the Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis time travel thing, and the X-Men Last Stand in 2006. He was the production designer on that one. Moving on, the next title card we see is that for Dean Semler. Good old Dean coming back from Road Warrior. And I could not be more glad because I love the way that Dean Semler shoots things. We're big fans. Yeah. I don't think we've ever gone over his IMDb top four. He was the cinematographer on Mel Gibson's Apocalypto in 2006. He was the cinematographer on Dances with Wolves in 1990. Mm. Obviously, Road Warrior. And then he did a movie in 1989 called Dead Calm. Not quite sure what that one's all about. But having not seen Dead Calm or Apocalypto before, but having seen Dances with Wolves, 
trying to think if there were any like visual things that stood out to me when we were watching that Costner movie that remind me. The scenery. That's true. There was a lot of landscape in that movie. Yes. And it's been a while since we've watched Dances with Wolves, hasn't it? Yes. It has been quite some time. Yeah. Funny enough, that's not one that I'm like itching to run back and watch. I remember it being a bit drawn out, slowly paced at times. Yeah, it was like twice as long as I remembered it being. There are definitely some movies that I will not watch because of runtime. <laughs> like, good luck ever trying to get me to watch Gone with the Wind because that's, oh, come on. that's just too long. Oh, I love, Not going to do it. I love that movie. Nope. You're right. It is long. Oh, he's done a lot of Adam Sandler stuff. Well, I mean, someone's got to work with Sandler. Say what you will about Sandler movies. They make money. Yeah, I was going to say. They also make money. Oh, he did Bruce Almighty, too. Bruce Almighty as well. I think Bruce Almighty 2 was called Evan Almighty and starred a different guy altogether. Steve Carell. Yes, that one. I'm not sure that was so much a sequel. As more of like a conceptual spinoff? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he also did Super Mario Brothers. There's a low point in everyone's career. You know what? You can say a lot about the Mario Brothers movie. Mm -hmm. I guess I should say the Super Mario Brothers movie. You can say a lot about it, but you cannot say that it wasn't, and I know that's a double negative, but you cannot say that it wasn't interesting to look at. Okay. <laughs> okay, fine. Whatever. Should he also we... did Cocktail. There you go. That bottle spinning movie with the short guy. He also did a TV movie called Do I Have to Kill My Child? Mm -hmm. You know, they say that when you have a clickbait title like that with a question, typically the answer is no. And I really hope that's the case with that one. I don't like kids, but I also don't like child murder, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm hoeing about. Say, yeah. Careful uh, how you hem and ha. <laughs> I would think if it were the name of a movie, that clickbait type of title would probably be answered yes. I do have to kill my child. If it were an internet clickbait, the answer would be no. I think the internet has ruined clickbait titles. Probably. I mean, I didn't look at the movie at all, but I would expect that it's a horror movie. Maybe a parent that's possessed and they have to kill their child because the demon inside them says so. Yeah, I love that you went that route with the parent is possessed and not the child is possessed because that was my idea. I was like, okay, if you're in an omen situation and your child is literally <laughs> the Antichrist, okay, then, you know, we'll make an exception. But I feel like nine times out of ten, don't kill your kids. Only 90% of the time you shouldn't kill your kids. Okay, I don't know the exact percentages of child possession you by think, antichrists and demons and stuff like that. You think 10% of the children in the world are possessed by demons? Okay, you look at a group of 10 kids, there's always going to be one that you're like, okay, he might be the antichrist. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> we put it like that. <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> but as long as it's shot with beautiful Dean Semler scenery. Exactly. Then it's okay. You will notice, as we're looking at this title card for Dean Semler, that ACS appears after his name, and that stands for the Australian Cinematographer Society. I was looking on their website to try and see when he was inducted and if his membership still stands to this day. I'm assuming it does, but they didn't put on the webpage when he was inducted, and so I was a little peeved by that, but you know... I'm not the kind of guy that's going to send an email around the world and be like, hey, what's up with your matrix there? I'm not going <laughs> to do that. I got other things to do. Keep me busy. Anyway, Dean Semler's name fades away. Next up is our editor, Richard Francis Bruce, who has edited movies such as Seven from 1995, Air Force One 
from 1997, The Rock from 1996, and a movie that we mentioned before a little while ago, Dead Calm in 1989. I like that Richard Francis Bruce worked on a Harrison Ford movie and a Sean Connery movie because this season of Indiana Jones Minute, which I absolutely love, is doing Last Crusade. And I don't remember what minute we're going to be on that show, but we actually got a guest spot on their show and we're going to have them come over and play in our yard too. So if you liked them from season two, they're coming back for season three. And if you didn't like them in season two, too bad. They're coming back for season three because I like them. (laughs) Now, I will admit, I have never seen Air Force One Have you seen it? I have seen it. It's okay. Yeah. It's not a bad movie by any stretch, but I'm not going to highly recommend that you run out and see it. Yeah. I understand that Harrison Ford plays the president and Mm -hmm. at some point he forcibly tells someone to get off of his plane. Yeah. Another movie that is probably another mark against my credibility. I haven't seen The Rock. I can recommend that movie a little stronger than Air Force One. I enjoyed it. I've seen it a couple of times. Sean Connery is good. He's fun in it. Nicolas Cage is fine. He's typical Nicolas Cage, I assume. I think he's a little calmer than the stereotypical Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. He's not like face-off crazy. Right. I don't really know what that means because I've never seen face-off. Okay, face-off. He's like... He's like crazy. Completely off the rails. Like bees in a basket. Exactly. He's Wicker Man crazy. <laughs> he's Wicker Man in face crazy. Off. Yeah, he's a little bit more like nerdy scientist forced into an action hero role in The Rock. If I remember correctly, the villains are pretty great. I think Ed Harris is the main bad guy, which yes. Ed Harris is an amazing bad I guy. I love him as a bad guy. He's so good. You remember that one time? I think, didn't he try and blow up Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock in a bus? Was, was that, that him? I've never that seen him too? Speed. Really? Wow. Really? Man, if we weren't... Don't if give we weren't... me that look. You've never seen The Fugitive. Okay. <laughs> I was just about to say that it's too bad we're so busy doing a podcast that we can't just sit down and go through our laundry list of movies that we haven't seen. We should write down every time we're like, oh, I haven't seen that movie. And watch it. We should yeah. make a list. <laughs> It'd be long, though. Try and earn back some of the credibility that we're constantly losing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Now, there is one movie on that list that I refuse to watch because I have more or less the full gist of how it goes. And it's just, I don't know, not a big Fincher fan. And that movie is, of course, Seven. I... You've never seen Seven? I have seen bits and pieces of it. Wait a second. No, our rule is you're not allowed to quote a movie that you've never seen, Mr. What's in the Box. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I've seen scenes. Or I have watched scenes. I have never sat down and watched it from beginning to end in one sequence. And it's just one of those things where it just rubs me the wrong way. It's pretty gruesome. I've seen it once and that was certainly enough. Like it's good. It's a good movie. You just can't handle it. I just can't sit down and consume it all at once. It's just one of those things. Can't explain it. It just is. Moving on. (laughs) Next title card up is our composer and conductor for this movie, Maurice Jarre. Jarre? Once again, American accent, pronouncing it wrong. Anyway, he is an acclaimed composer. He did the music for Lawrence of Arabia in 1962, Dr. Zivago in 1965, Witness in 1985, and Ghost in 1990. Ghost. Now that is a fun movie. I'm not sure I'd call it fun, but it's a good movie. It's Swayze. 
getting revenge on the dudes that killed him all the while like hanging out with Whoopi Goldberg and there's the pottery scene. Yeah, it's a good movie. I like it. It's a fun movie. I'm sure it's fun. (laughs) I guess we have different definitions of what fun movies necessarily are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think we sat down and watched Lawrence of Arabia once, didn't we? Yes, we did. When we were dating, we went through a phase where we watched classic movies. Mm -hmm. And Lawrence of Arabia was one of them. And oh, dear me. Yeah. (laughs) When I say Lawrence of Arabia came out in 1962, that's every implication that comes along with it because that movie is over three and a half hours long. Yeah. And it's a lot of desert and a lot of wide shots. In hindsight, if I was going to get you to watch a three and a half hour movie, I wish it had been Gone with the Wind instead of Lawrence of Arabia. Trying to think of something bad to say about Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that movie cast the KKK in a good light? No. No? No, it doesn't. Hmm. Could have sworn there was some sort of scene in there where it's like, KKK is awesome. Can't remember, though, because I've never seen it. Yeah. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It does have one of the most depressing endings, because that's it. That's how the movie ends. Yeah. Is that he walks out on her and says, I don't give a damn about you anymore. (laughs) And she's devastated, because she just figured out that she loved him. Oh, womp womp. Now that we know who the composer is, we move on. We get the title card that says written by Terry Hayes and George Miller. Now, I mentioned this last time. Terry Hayes and George Miller once again collaborated. They co-wrote the story like they did with a road warrior. Terry Hayes came into the situation with the story of the waiting ones. And then I'm sure George Miller invented the situation that would bring Max to the children. That doesn't surprise me at all. This movie is distinctly two parts. And then the finale is those two parts coming together. Mm -hmm. You've got Thunderdome and then the portion beyond Beyond Thunderdome. Thunderdome. And it's a little jarring, the two separate parts of the movie. They're so completely different that, yeah, it's jarring. We move on from the written by credit to the co-producers page. This movie was co-produced by Doug Mitchell and Terry Hayes. Doug Mitchell is a name that we're going to see in the future. He started working with Miller and Kennedy in 1984 on their TV miniseries projects, such as The Cowra Breakout and Bodyline, and then he just stuck with George Miller. So in 2009, Kennedy Miller was changed to Kennedy Miller Mitchell to honor the fact that Doug stuck around for so long working with George and getting these movies put out. It's tough to think of somebody coming in replacing Byron Kennedy, but a producer is an essential part of a movie. You can't just not have a producer. And it's such a large role in a movie that you can't be both the director and the producer. You can't be both the editor and the producer. You need someone chasing people around and hounding them to get things done. Yeah. So that you can focus on the job of directing. Yes. And as we see here, it can easily be a two-person job, a three-person job. George Miller's we're about to see is also credited as a producer. Like a capital P producer. Yeah. So it's an entire team of people. It's nice that George and Terry had Doug around to fill that void, even if he didn't fill it completely. Like, I don't think you can ever truly replace a friend, that type of thing. But in the world of business, you can replace a business partner. And you have to. And they made it work. That's the important thing. They did. And well enough that eventually they decided he deserved to be a partner in the company. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the next title card we see is producer George Miller. And after that, we go on to the title card that says directors. 
George Miller and George Ogilvie, the two Georges. Cinema Sins, Gurr, they say that it took two directors to wrangle the ego of Mel Gibson, and I say, no sirs, that was not the case. No, it took two directors to wrangle the children. Oh yeah, there is a behind-the-scenes documentary that you can watch on YouTube. It's narrated by Tina Turner. I think it was made for television, but I'll post a link to that on the listener page so people can watch it. But it basically spends a lot of time showing George Ogilvie working with the kids, getting them to act during the scenes where they're running around and they're all sitting in a group, and then it shows George working with the adults on the action scenes and making sure that the stunts come together and whatnot. I kind of feel like George Miller looked at the prospect of working with a bunch of children and said, you know what? Let's bring in a second director. Yeah. Did you look up much about George Ogilvie? I did not. I'm wondering if he has a history of working with children. Was he brought on specifically because he's good with kids? He was brought on specifically, as far as I remember, because he had worked with George Miller on their TV projects. Oh, okay. So they had experience together. Exactly. The miniseries projects that I'm thinking of are The Dismissal and Bodyline, which were both Kennedy Miller productions. So he already knew what George was like. George already knew what George was like. This is going to be really confusing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but they had prior experience together. They worked well together. So it just was a natural fit. Okay. Now, it's been a while since we watched this documentary that I mentioned on YouTube, but there were some standout elements to it. Something that stuck out to me about that documentary was the kids, of course, because kids take over whatever space they're in, that they weren't a group of child actors necessarily. I'm, I'm sure some of them had acting experience, but the point of them was that they were child artists in some way, performing artists in instruments, in in our in other in other artistic ways that I can't remember specifically. <laughs> You know, they were artistic, disciplined children in general. That being said, they're still kids and they still needed to be wrangled like kids. And there are some scenes in the documentary of George Ogilvie, particularly in the storytelling scene, where he's trying to get them to all work together to make the sounds and the movements of like the plane crashing and stuff like that. It was really interesting to see how he managed to get the kids to do what he needed. And classic phrasing, I guess, of a teacher or a parent, be like, that was fantastic, but can you do it this way? Yeah. Like, support, but I need something different. I liked the one part of the documentary where George Ogilvie is talking to this group of kids, and he's like, all right, we're all going to run down this sand dune. You guys need to space out, because if one of you falls, you're going to take out the rest of them. Yes. You know, <laughs> spread out, don't go too fast. Run, but don't go crazy. And it's ah, it's just such a big job. Yeah. And it's nice because during this video, you get to see a few little like slice of life things, the like, the kids getting tutored and whatnot. And then there's one scene where all of the cast people are gathered in this one room, and two of the child actor girls they wrote a song about the movie. Yes, they did. And I think it was less about the movie and more about Mel. I think it was mostly about the production. 
I feel like they devoted one verse to Mel. Okay, to how much they loved him. He really clicked with them so much so, another detail from the behind the scenes, he clicked so well with them that George, probably both of them, Miller and Ogilvy, had to separate Mel from the kids. Because when Max and the kids interact, Max is supposed to be a stranger. Mm-hmm. And kids, you know, they're not that great at acting. So they, they needed to not know him that well. Yeah. They needed to be familiar with the idea of him because that's what the story asked for. The waiting ones are crazy about the idea of Max because of who they think he represents. So it must have been really tricky, but it's a fun watch. It's only about half an hour. Like I said, I'll post a link on the listener page. You guys can check it out later. After this title card for the directors, we fade in from black on a very high shot of a, I will call it a bleak and dry landscape. And we get about a solid second of film time for that fade to process. And by the time the minute's over, we are up from black looking at this big expanse. And there's honestly not much to it at this point. Nope. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to come back next time. And we're going to go on kind of a lazy approach towards this landscape. And we'll see where that gets us. Yep. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute two of beyond thunderdome see you next time Everybody